0: how do religions start? This was the burning question of the 19th century, especially in the wake of the recent discoveries of countries such as Australia or the continent of North America. And so anthropologists, whose job was to study human culture and behavior, were completely fascinated by these continents as they appeared to be time capsules of human civilization from thousands of years ago, which had been completely preserved and untouched by contact from other nations. So the question became, if one could study these people groups, could one discover how religions themselves were first created? Now, of course, it was also during the 19th century that Charles Darwin first published his book, On the Origin of Species. But the full title of his book is often forgotten. The full title is, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, or The Preservation of Favoured Races in the Struggle for Life. Now, already there, inherent in Darwin's model of evolution, it implies that humans were not from one race, as the Bible did. Instead, there are multiple races... Of which some are favored or unfavored, or we could say superior and inferior. So, when anthropologists went and studied the indigenous cultures of America and Australia, they carried with them this evolutionary bias and really this uh, racist perspective, and it completely warped their analysis. Now, the most famous of these anthropologists was a man called E.B. Tyler. And he proposed an evolutionary model of the growth of religion. And here's what that means. It was his belief that the primitive cultures of America and Australia, they were incapable of being monotheistic, that is, worshipping one God. After all, it was the advanced and civilized countries of the West that were monotheistic. So how could these primitive tribes have come to such an advanced idea? These were uh, inferior races, according to Darwin's evolutionary model. And so clearly, Tyler's view was based on, unfortunately, a very uh, racist view of these cultures. But Tyler wasn't the only one with a theory. Two other Christian scholars, Andrew Lang and Wilhelm Schmidt, gave a very different perspective. As they spent time in American Australia, they discovered a recurring pattern in many of the cultures that they studied. This was that they had a common belief in a high god, or a father god. For example, in Australia, the Nari Nari believed in a supreme being called Narendere. He created all things, taught humanity its rituals, and then ascended back to heaven. The Marara believed in the supreme god Norelli, who created the entire land, gave humanity its laws, and ascended to heaven. In America, the Pawnee people believed in a supreme creator, who created humans in his image and created via his thoughts. The African Yoruba people worshipped the supreme god Olodum- Olodumare. Believed to be the creator and sustainer of all things, and being not bound by space, time, or dimension, he is all-knowing and the origin of morality. There are also no idols or statues made of him. Even in uh, Cunabarabran, home to the Gamilaray Australians, the Gamilaray believed in a supreme god and referred to him as an All-Father. He created humanity gave them the law to keep, ascended back into the sky, and rules from there. And when people die, they will have to stand before him in judgment. So across all different countries, Langen and Schmidt found that at the core of many religions was the belief in one supreme creator or father God. So it was their theory that religions began as monotheistic and over time developed into polytheism, rather than the other way around. Now, Wilhelm and Schmidt did not claim that these people were necessarily worshipping the biblical God, especially since many of these supreme gods had since been surrounded by lesser deities, spirits, ancestor spirits, ghosts, demons, and all sorts of other spiritual beings, resulting in a polytheistic worship. So the new question that posed uh, from their research was, why do religions start with the worship of one God, that is monotheistic, but over time become worshipping many gods, that is polytheistic? Well, Lang and Schmidt observed that because the supreme gods were supreme, they had no need of anything. Humans could not give these gods anything they needed or didn't already have. And this was highly problematic for humans, as it meant that one could not barter or bribe the supreme god to give them what they wanted in exchange for what the supreme god desired. Sinful human beings naturally rebel against the idea of worshipping and obeying god, and instead seek to put themselves in god's place. So if one could not bribe, control, or manipulate the Supreme God, then perhaps man could invent lesser deities, spirits, ghosts, ancestors, who could be coerced for man's benefit. This was the conclusion of Andrew Lang, that sinful man created their own lesser gods, who they could control for their own good. Here's a direct quote of his from his book, The Making of Religion. And he says, A moral creator in, need of, in no need of gifts and opposed to lust and mischief will not help men with love spells or with malevolent sending of disease by witchcraft. He will not favor one man above his neighbor or one tribe above its rivals as a reward for sacrifice which he does not accept or as constrained by charms which do not touch his omnipotence. Ghosts and ghost gods, on the other hand, in need of food and blood, afraid of spells and binding charms, are a corrupt, but to man a useful, constituency. Man being what he is, man was certain to go a-whoring after practically useful ghosts, ghost gods, and fetishes which he could keep in his wallet or medicine bag. For these he was sure in the long run, first to neglect his idea of his creator, next perhaps to reckon him as only one, if the highest, of the venerable rabble of spirits and deities, and to sacrifice to him as to them. And this is exactly what happened. Now, Lang's quote there, he's speaking quite academically. Uh, So a more simplified version of this would be, A moral creator has no need of anything and he's opposed to evil because he's the ultimate moral good. Therefore, he's not going to do whatever sinful thing man wants him to do. However, if man creates these lesser gods who do fear charms and spells and are in need of food and blood, well, all of a sudden you can barter with these gods. Uh, You can bribe them with things, and if you do that, they will do things in exchange. They'll do things for you. And man might still recognize the supreme God exists, but he only does so uh, admitting that this one God is actually one of many. It's this innate desire for humans to create gods in their own image. Gods which serve their own purposes, who are not morally perfect, who can be easily swayed to do their bidding, and who don't hold them morally accountable. This is how religions go from monotheism to polytheism. Now, sadly, the religion of the Israelites that we read about in the Bible follows this exact same pattern. They begin with the worship of one God, and gradually they fall into polytheism and idolatry. The first example of this is probably the worship of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. And this is while God is giving the law to Moses, which says, do not make any graven images and do not worship any other gods besides me. Uh, So when the Israelites eventually do possess the land of Canaan, their idolatry sadly does not stop at just this golden calf incident. Rather than getting rid of the inhabitants of these areas, They begin to adopt the religious practices of these people. And eventually, this idolatry becomes such a problem that it results in the destruction and exile of the Israelite people. But, again, why did the Israelites keep wandering off to worship other gods? Gods that weren't the one that rescued them from Egypt. Well, just like anyone else, it suited them better. Gods uh, like Baal and Asherah, they not only allowed sin such as idolatry and fornication, but actively promoted it. Worshipping these gods allows for human evil. These gods can be bribed. They can do whatever you want for yourself. Perhaps, though, the greatest insult to God was that these idols were often worshipped in conjunction with him. It's interesting, the biblical prophets, they usually don't describe the nations of Israel and Judah as having completely abandoned all worship to God. Instead, they seem to give lip service to him and worship him as just merely one of many gods. This is a practice called religious syncretism. And it sounds fancy, but it basically just means someone having a religious buffet. They grab some ideas from one god and some ideas from another religion they like, and they put it in and mix it all together to make this religion that they want. Um, And this was a common practice in the ancient Near East. People would adopt Canaanite deities, Babylonian, Phoenician, whatever it was. If you liked the god, add him to the Pantheon. Why not? And in fact, we have evidence that this happened in Israel, not just from the biblical text, but from archaeological evidence. Uh, A storage jar from a place of Israelite worship dated to about the 800s BC has the following inscription of it. It says, Yahweh of Samaria and his Asherah. And it's saying here that Yahweh has a, a consort or a wife, and it is this deity called Asherah. Asherah was a Canaanite deity, and typically she was the wife of Baal. Yet here, there's evidence that the Israelites worshipped Yahweh in conjunction with Asherah. And this is just incredibly insulting to God, particularly when we see that God describes his relationship with Israel as a marriage. And yet these people, they're... they're, they're going and worshipping other gods other than the, the God who actually saved and rescued them and has done everything to them. And so as we look across the world and in biblical history, we see that the natural tendency of humanity is to begin with the worship of the one true God and drift into idolatry and worship many gods to suit our own selfish and sinful needs. And ultimately, this is why idols don't truly begin when someone cuts down a tree or carves a piece of stone to make an image. Idolatry always has its origin somewhere far more sinister. And to discover this, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel, he is a prophet during the time of exile. So this is while the Jews are in Babylon, their worship of the other idols has pushed them so far away from God that they are now in a foreign land in exile. Let's read Ezekiel 14 and begin in verse 1. It says, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of men, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of, uh, should be inquired of at all by them? So where does God say these men have ultimately set up these idols? It's in their hearts. This is the true origin of all idolatry, the sinful human heart. And this is just what Schmidt and Lange observed. Humans, we lack this desire to worship the one true God. We instead want to create gods that serve our own sinful purposes. I like what the Protestant reformer John Calvin has to say. He writes that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We constantly want to make these gods in our own image and that serve our own purposes. So yes, a man or a woman may eventually carve a rock or chop down some timber to make a graven image. But even if they never did that, the true idol ultimately resides in the human heart. Let's continue reading verses 4 and 5. God says, Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart, And puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to the prophet I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. So God does say in verse 4 He will give an answer, but it's not what they expect. Um, I think the the New Living Translation puts it in a nice way. It says, So the Lord will give them the kind of answer their great idolatry deserves. Uh, This sense that they're getting their comeuppance. But why does God give an answer to this insincere questioning of him? Well, he tells us in verse 5 there, To seize the heart of Israel. To bring them into Repentance. God desperately wants his people to turn away from these idols. And so he wants to seize their hearts. He wants to grab them by the hearts and bring them back to him. Notice as well, it says that when we worship idols, we are estranged from God. God says these idols are causing a distance, a separation, a division between him and these people. We cannot have a relationship with God if we are at the same time in a relationship with idols. And let's conclude by reading verses 6 through to 8. It says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of the people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord." So beginning in verse 6, God here, he is pleading with the people of Israel to, to turn away. Repent, turn away from your idols, turn your faces away from all your abominations. This is God desperately pleading with his people, please turn away so that I don't have to judge you. And that's what verses 7 and 8 are. If we try and give a false, sincere worship to God while holding on to the idols of our heart, well God will judge us severely, and his judgment will be righteous. that will be what we deserve because again what a what an insult it is to God to worship him and an idol just it's just as great an insult as being married and cheating uh, being with someone else, even worse, trying to tell your spouse. ...about this person and say, oh, it's all fine, you know, I can have both. That's what the people here were doing. They wanted both. They want God and these other idols. And yet, even after the people have done this for so long to God, he still desires for them to turn away from their idols and worship him. So to conclude, how do we apply the words of Ezekiel to our own lives? Does modern man today still make idols of the heart? Well, I think it's quite easy to say that both Christians and non-believers are at risk of replacing God with other idols. These idols can be things such as wealth, success, work, even ministry, doctrine and theology, self-improvement, things such as alcohol and drugs, Sports and Recreation, Exercise, Lust, Sex, Pornography, Entertainment, Celebrities, Pop Culture, Social Media, Technology, Consumerism, or even Comfort and Convenience. Now notice that some of these idols are not inherently good or bad. Some of them such as um, Exercise or Sports and Recreation. These are things which are not necessarily bad, but if they occupy a space in our hearts that God alone should have, then they have become an idol. Perhaps you, like the Israelites, have placed an idol in your heart. Or perhaps you're practicing religious syncretism. Yes, I can worship Yahweh and his Asherah. I can worship God and I can worship pornography. I can worship God and comfort and convenience. There's not enough room for God and something else in your heart. But as God said to Ezekiel, if we have an idol in our heart, God cannot reside there. Polytheism, worshipping multiple gods, does not work. Because as soon as we begin to worship something other than God, we become estranged from him. And there are so many good reasons why we should get rid of these idols. Idols do nothing for us. They only lead to iniquity and sin. Really, they they completely override our reason. And that's because we keep going back to them even when they know they'll harm us. It's a bit like junk food. Junk food we know is terrible, but it's addictive. We go back for more and more and more. And it's because each time we eat it, our appetite increases. The other thing which increases the appetite is the fact that it's never truly satisfying. Junk food will not satisfy our hunger and so we keep going back hoping this time it'll satisfy us. Idols are the same. We go back to them over and over and over again looking for that promise of satisfaction. Maybe this time I'll be happy with wealth. Maybe this time self-improvement can do something for me. Maybe this time I'll get that satisfaction that lust promises me. But it never does. And as our appetite grows and grows, so also does our slavery to this idol. Idols always require sacrifice. The biggest ones are usually things such as uh, time, We we give up all these amounts of time just so we can worship our idol. It could be relationships. We we sacrifice our relationships to get some satisfaction from this idol. And ultimately, if it jeopardizes our relationship with God, well, that is the greatest sacrifice that it is asking from us. God wants to seize our hearts this morning. God wants to seize your heart today. He wants to give you freedom from the idols which enslave you, the idols which you've created in your own heart, the idols and gods that suit your needs and wants and desires but have made you a captive. God does not desire for you to live a life of idolatry. He doesn't want you to have given your heart to multiple gods God does not want for you to be polytheistic and give your heart to multiple gods. He wants you to give your heart to him completely. Maybe you feel trapped and you don't think there's any rescue. Perhaps you've betrayed God's loyalty so many times that you feel undeserving of his grace. Well, you are undeserving of his grace. That's the whole point of grace. And yet God is still inviting you to accept it. Idols never truly satisfy, but God does. The human heart craves a relationship with God, so don't deprive yourself of that. And most importantly, do not deprive yourself of salvation and eternal life that comes with that relationship with God. To conclude, I want to read... Hebrews 10:22 which says let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water